0: Before we start, I want to pray, Yahweh Father, you know who I am to you, and that's all that matters and Father, I'm scared standing here today for what I have to say, and father i'm just I'm scared because what I'm doing is uh comes with it a great responsibility and and Father, I'm not worthy I'm not worthy to teach your word and i'm I'm not worthy to stand here so I don't know that any of us are, Yahweh. I don't know that any of us are. So, Father, I just pray that you give me strength and um, clean my lips, clean them with coal and with fire. Father, let me say what you'd have to be said. Father, let me let me teach your word the way that you'd want it to be shared. And Father, may the church that uh, that sits before me, the body, your body, your 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 bride, Father, I pray that uh, that they'd be edified by what comes out of my mouth. I love you, and I'm thankful for what you what you've done for me and how you've blessed me and and um, the knowledge that you've given me, Father. I just pray that um that you're glorified in my actions. I ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to get into the third chapter of James, but before doing so, I'd like to kind of recap the first and second chapter, and uh, because we closed out two chapters the last time I talked, and as I've mentioned several times throughout our study, this entire book or the epistle. It's a series of tests to show ourselves to show ourselves whether, where we stand in our faith or the lack thereof to see if we have true saving faith. In chapter 1, we dealt with the perseverance of trials and how we would handle them. We learned that it's uh, important that we count it all joy when we go through a trial. We dealt with uh, temptation and where we should place the blame when we fall into temptation. We learned that Yahweh doesn't tempt anyone. Instead, it's our own evil desires that drag us into temptation. Then we studied about receiving the word and what to do with it once we had received it. We should be doers of the word, apply what we learn to our lives, and not just hearers only, left unchanged. We've learned that pure and undefiled religion is to look after the widows and the orphans or to take care of the needy. And then in chapter 2, we saw the test of favoritism in the church, whether we consider the looks or the prestige of a man over a man with lesser means. Or how we treat our brother over another due to a person's wealth or his social status. Then as we covered last time when I talked, we talked about the famous verses that pertain to faith without works. James told us that faith without works is useless. If you don't have works to show your faith, then it's not really faith. It's just a mask. It's just a false claim to faith. So all these all these have been tests of our faith, everything that we've discussed in the last two chapters. And good tests they are, to be perfectly clear. And we should we should use these tests and we should examine our lives and make sure that we have true saving faith. That's the whole idea of this epistle. Don't miss the general theme of the, the the epistle of James. It's very important. I hope you've been studying James as we've been going along. I, th- I hope you take it home and and go back and really examine yourself and see and see if yourself see for yourself, lines up with the scriptures. If we're being honest with ourselves, like I know we are, I'm sure that everyone's found some area that they can tighten up in. I have. Every area that we've discussed, I can tighten up in. But I know that everybody's probably found one. Maybe maybe Yahweh is allowing you to go through some hard times to strengthen you, produce endurance in your life, and to build up your faith. James says to have joy during these times. If you're going through hard times and trials and things like that, maybe Yahweh's allowing you to go through this so that your, that your faith might be strengthened. Or maybe it's temptation that you have a problem with. Maybe there, there's some things in, the, in this carnal world and, and, uh, that really catch your attention and draw you in. You're tempted and you fall. Everyone's tempted at some point in life when he's drawn away by his own evil desires. That's what James says. But when we're tempted and we realize what our sin is, do we blame Yahweh? that was the test. Who do we who do we put the blame on? Do do we realize that it's our own problem, that we fell into temptation, or do we blame Yahweh said that he put us in a position that we couldn't get out of? Or do we recognize that it's that it's our own desires that caused it? Sin is sin is all yours. It's not his. And by the way, for any urges to for any urges to sin that you do seem to have control of, that you might have conquered, you can thank Yahweh for that because I assure you that you didn't do it on your own. If you've mastered a sin or a temptation in life or something that you might fall circumstance to, you can can give Yahweh the praise for that because all good things come down from above and blaming Yahweh for your temptation could be where you're stumbling at. Or perhaps it's the big one of sitting in church, hearing someone bring forth a message that drives nails in your heart. Really convicting you of something you haven't you haven't been doing, or you have or you have been doing and doing it wrong, but you walked away, you left you left church unchanged. You just you just got up and walked out of here. And even though your heart was crushed and it was pricked and and uh, Yahweh Yahweh's knocking on the door of your heart all night long, you just got up and left. You know, and you you looked in the mirror, you seen the flaws, but you didn't do anything about it. Maybe that's somewhere that you struggle, or possibly that we don't tend to the widows and the orphans. That's another one. We covered that. I know that that was a that was a big one with me. I never even thought about tending to widows and orphans. I I could probably justify it. I've I've got a I've got a um, grandmother in law. I've I've painted her house, and things like that. And, you know, and I I I might pat myself on the back and say I took taking care of a widow, but that's not good enough. I could tighten up. I could do a little better. What about favoritism? Do you prefer one of your brothers over another? Would you give Randy a better seat than you would Frankie just because? Maybe Randy's got more money or Randy's got more clout or something like that. Would you do that? How many are guilty of overlooking great biblical qualities in a person and concentrating on worldly traits that don't mean a hill of beans to Yahweh? Maybe this is where you struggle. I don't know. Everybody everybody struggles in different places. And last but certainly not least, the test that we covered last time that I talked, is your faith dead because you have no action behind it? If your faith was a body, could it breathe? Could it talk? Could it walk? Could it run? Is it alive? Does your faith have a product or produce action? If not, then it's not genuine faith. It's just a mask. If, you, if your faith doesn't do anything, if you can't see it, if you can't exhibit your faith, it's useless. It's a waste of time. And the faith that we make a claim to must be real. It must be genuine. It must be faith with works. It's, it's mandatory. Now, I know all people struggle in some area or another, but do we constantly try to improve or walk for Yahweh? Are we concerned about his opinion of us? Are we concerned about the example we leave for others to follow? And are you considering these tests in this book of James and how they compare in your life? I encourage you to do so. Examine yourself and see where you stand. Now, last time I taught, we discussed that Abraham's faith is is what justified him in Yahweh's eyes. I I, I made a a mention to there's There's two ways that he was justified. One, he was justified in Yahweh's eyes by his faith, and he was justified among men. By his works, it was his exhibition of his obedience to the to what Yahweh told him to do that made him the great leader or the iconic image in the eyes of the nation of Israel. But it was the two things, faith and works, coupled together, that created the perfect example of how a believer should look and act. So tonight, I would like to show you how within our own body we possess the very thing that tells a man's inner character. Let's look at James chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 12. James chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, Not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man who is also able to control his whole body. Now when we put bits into the... Mouths of horses to make them obey us. We also guide the whole animal. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how large a forest a small fire ignites, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of righteousness, is placed among the parts of our body. It pollutes the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. For every creature, animal or bird, reptile or fish, is tamed, and has been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who are made in Yahweh's likeness. Out of the same mouth come blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things should not be this way. Does not a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. So we see the tongue is a very powerful thing. That's what, that, that's what James is showing us here.
1: James mentions
0: the tongue in every chapter of his book, of his epistle. In chapter 1, verse 19, he says, Be slow to speak. And in verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue but deceiving his heart, his religion is useless. In chapter 2, in verse 12, he says, Speak and act like those who are judged by the law. He mentions it in chapter 4, which we'll get to later, but verse 11 says, Don't speak against your brother. And in chapter 5, in verse 12, he says, When you speak, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But for now, right now, in in chapter 3, he says, not many should become teachers. He's talking about speaking and being teachers of the word of Yahweh, preachers, evangelists, etc. That's his point. That's what he means when he says not many should should become teachers. Why? It says because we will receive stricter judgment. Stricter judgment for what? Being a hard worker and trying to bring good to the people of the church. No, that's not the reason that we'll receive stricter judgment for being a teacher. It's for speaking without knowledge.
1: That's the reason
0: that we'll receive stricter judgment. That's the reason that I have a hard time preaching this message. I didn't want to stand up here because I'm, because I'm fearful of that. I really am. I think this all stems back to the first chapter where he says, Be quick to hear, but slow to speak. In verse 19, we talked about it when we covered it. We're going through chapter 1. We need to be sure we have a proper understanding before we speak on what we've learned. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 22, he says, don't be too quick to lay hands on anyone. And he means don't authorize somebody too quick to preach. He also tells him in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6 when he's selecting teachers that that the teacher must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and fall into condemnation of the devil. James understands this and that's, understands this and that's why he gives the warning that not many should become teachers. That's his point. We'll see in the next few verses that the tongue is a very powerful thing. So to speak, as a teacher without proper knowledge and understanding it can be harmful. Not to the teacher. It can be harmful to the teacher, but not to the teacher so much as to the audience. It's a dangerous thing that you speak to anybody without proper knowledge. Then he gives then he gives condolences to those who shouldn't be teachers. In verse three, it says this, it says, For we all stumble in many ways. He's not talking about the people that are teachers. He's talking about the people that shouldn't be teachers. He's saying, For we all stumble in many in many ways. Then at the end of verse two, he gives us an example of an able teacher. If he doesn't stumble, catch what he says, if he doesn't stumble in what he says, he is mature he is a mature man who is able to control the whole body. Notice he says if he, if he can control his mouth, he can control his whole body. You know why? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know what is in a man's heart, listen to his mouth. He might control it for a time, but he won't do it always. James says if he can control his mouth, he's mature. He means in his faith, his spiritual maturity. He's not, he's not a babe in understanding anymore. That's what he's saying. He's not a child in conduct, but a grown man, full of age, a manager of his mouth, one eligible for the position of teaching. Paul mentions talking to people of this caliber in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6. He says, however, among the mature, we do speak wisdom among the mature. And the author of Hebrews mentions the mature when he speaks of solid food in chapter 5 and verse 14. And he says this, yes, solid food is for the mature, for those whom senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. In other words, someone who is off the milk, someone who has been weaned off the elementary things, this is a mature man. This man is a mature man and is possibly able to control the tongue and perhaps the whole body, making him a candidate for the teaching position. However, this would not be the only criteria for teaching. This is just one example that James gives. See, the tongue is so powerful for perhaps the most powerful part of our whole body. The Bible is full of examples of the tongue, a wicked tongue, a lying tongue, a bitter tongue. It goes on and on. Filthy tongue, complaining tongue, gossiping tongue, boasting tongue, a vile tongue. The Bible gives many examples of the tongue. And nothing, absolutely nothing, is more representative of who you are than your mouth. James goes on to explain how important and instrumental the tongue is to our lives and our inner person. Let's read verses 3 through 6. Now, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we also guide the whole animal. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they're guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how, how large a forest a small fire ignites, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. <clears throat> James says in verse 3, we use bits on a horse to steer the whole horse. In verse 4, he mentions the ship and how the rudder is so small and it still controls that huge giant vessel. He says that whoever controls the reins or the rudder controls the horse of the ship. Now compare that to what I just told you about the latter part of verse 2. James is just he's using an analogy here. He's saying if a man can control his tongue, he's like the pilot of a ship, or we might call it the captain. Okay? Or he would be like the rider of a horse. Just as a man must be able to control the ship, a man must be able to control his tongue. I'll give you an example of, of how how big a how big a horse is. They're uh they they vary in weight. They, I mean, just a regular horseman. Let's say they weigh from 800 to 1200 pounds. The Horse on the left may weigh 14, 1500 pounds. Okay? They're usually 14 to 17 hands high, given feet and inches. Let's say four and a half to five and a half feet high. That's at the withers. That's here. Head might be two foot higher than that. We put bits in their mouth to ride them. I was raised on horses. Just about. I know Rockets rode them. And Phyllis has rode them. And other people have. You put a bit in a horse's mouth, and it looks kind of like uh, it's got two bars that come down on the outside of his mouth, and it's just a just a standard bit. And a, there's a piece of a bar that goes through a horse's mouth, lays on top of his tongue, between his tongue and the roof of his mouth, and halfway through the bit, there's a hump, you know, just a standard rough, what I would call a rough-riding bit. You wouldn't put it in a horse that don't need a lot of correction, but a horse that's hard-headed, this is the kind of bit that we'd use. At the bottom of the bit, there's two reins that are attached to it. They go to the rider's hands. Okay, you you pull one side and make the horse's head turn to the left. Pull this side and make the horses or to the right. Make the horses turn to the left this way. And to stop them, you pull back on these reins. And what that, the knuckle that's inside of that bit actually pulls up on the roof of the horse's mouth, puts pressure on his mouth. He don't like it. He stops. He realizes, hey, something's wrong. I gotta stop. James is saying. With that rein, you can control a whole twelve hundred pound animal that you couldn't control without it. You can take that horse and do whatever you want to. You can spin him around in circles. Rocket rocket could testify to this. If a horse starts running you grab one side of the rein and just pull it back to your knee, pull his head right back on your knee, and that horse can all he can do is run around in a circle. He's not going anywhere, he just turn right there in a circle. It's wherever wherever you can wherever his head goes, that's where his body has to go. Just like just like the tongue in you know? a with a, with a person, and consider the ship. This is a cruise ship. This is uh, Kim's favorite kind. But uh, consider that ship right there. It's over three football fields long on average. Most of them, they're a thousand, roughly a thousand, around a thousand foot long. They towed a hundred and thirty tons, one hundred thirty thousand tons of cargo on them. Carry anywhere from five to six thousand people. And this ship right here. Is controlled by this little bitty rudder. Now that ship, that rudder—I don't know how big a rudder is, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, let's say it's a, on a ship that big. Let's say it's 10 foot, you know, in height, and I don't know, 15 foot long. That rudder controls that ship that's a thousand foot long. As little as it is, it's that—it's that important to the management of that ship. When we went—we went to Alaska on a boat, on a on a cruise. And we went up inside of a glacier, a glacier bay, and there's 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 rock and ice on both sides of you, and it's 500 foot high, either way you look. When you go in there, and you go in there, and it looks, it the ship's so big and the the walls are so high, it looks like you can reach off the side of the balcony of a boat and touch the wall. That's how close it looks. If you if you've never been to Alaska, you gotta go. It's fun. That captain will take that. He'd take that boat and he'd drive up in the middle of that bay while well, he's not backing it back out of there. I mean, it's it's just like a pass that goes up through rocks. But he gets up in there and he's got to turn it around. And it doesn't look like that ship will even go in there in a line, much less go up in there and turn around. But he gets up in there and he turns that thing around. And when he turns it around, in all honesty, he's probably only 50 foot from the end of the ship to the rock wall on both ends. Now, that ship's a 1,000 foot long, but he he does all that with a rudder and turbines and stuff like that. He's got some help on a big ship like that. But my point is, as small as the rudder is, it it can control a ship, a vessel that big. And the man that controls the rudder controls the ship. That's the point. Now, i tell you all that just to reiterate what James is saying here. The tongue is just like the bit of the rudder. It's such a small part of the body, but it boasts great things. In other words, it's super powerful, and it holds within it the power to mend and bind, or to destroy. Consider Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 21. Life and, death are in po- life and death are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Or how about Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 15. A ruler can be persuaded through patience, but a gentle tongue can break a bone. These are just a couple of examples of how great the tongue is, and it can be used for good or for bad. But the point is, if we control our tongue, we can also control our body. Our entire being. Now James goes on to give us another analogy of the fire. I love James and his analogies. He reminds me of Danny. Danny always has an analogy. He calls me. I don't even say hello. He says, hey, let me tell you about this. Have you ever thought about this? Have you considered it like this? I love it when he calls. I like analogies. It makes sense to me. I'm simple-minded. I need simple analogies. Yeshua taught like this too. We just call them parables. We don't call them analogies. But consider the analogy of the fire. James says, think about a large forest fire and how it starts. It starts with a small flame, and it turns into a violent, fierce fire that consumes everything it touches. I used to, I used to be a fireman, so I know a little bit about this. There used to be an ongoing joke around the fire department. And uh, every time we'd go to a call, we'd put out a fire, and the fire marshal would be out there investigating, he's getting all his samples and this, that, and the other, you know, and the homeowner never failed, the homeowner would come up and he'd say, man, I wonder what started that fire, and we would always say, a little flame about that big." <laughs> it was a home-going joke, we'd always do that, used to be another joke too, that, uh, people would, people would come up to you and they would say, uh, you know what burns my tail up, and they say, I don't know, and they say, ah, oh, flame about that high, <laughs> anyway, uh. Well, the tongue is just like the small flame that starts, that, that starts the outbreak of, of hell in a man's entire body. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness, and it's placed right there among all the other parts of our body. It's just sitting there idle, waiting to be good or bad. It can be, it can be one or the other. The tongue is a small it's, it's small compared to the leg, but so is a, so is a small flame compared to a forest fire. It starts with something little. Something as small as a little match can burn up half a Colorado. I think it was Colorado. Was it Colorado? Maybe a year, two years ago, that had the big forest fires and just burned on and on and on and on. It could have started. It could have started as simple as somebody flicking a cigarette out the window. That's all it takes. That's the kind of power the tongue has. It's just, it's just like a small flame. Let's look at verses seven and eight. Verse 7, it says, For every creature, animal or bird, reptile or fish, is tamed and has been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now James mentioned in verse 7 that all creatures have been tamed by man. Adam named them all. They all came to him. And Adam gave them name for all that he seen. Noah put them on the ark, and he tended to them. And today we can see a 500-pound killer lion jumping through hoops of fire in the circus. Okay. And all animals, in a general sense, have adapted around mankind living on the earth with them. So in one sense, they've all been tamed by man. But that's not James's point. His point is that the the worst of all nature can be controlled all except for the tongue. That's the point. Man has managed to conquer the most wildest things in nature, and yet he can't even control the smallest member of his own body. It's so restless and can be so evil the only way that the tongue can be tamed is by the work of Yahweh. That's it. Often Yahweh gives a man his grace and by his spirit he changes the nature of the curser, the swear, the liar, the blasphemer. But no man can do this alone. Not one. Though he's a superpower in nature and he can tr- control the beast of the earth, he can't control his own tongue. He, he doesn't have the ability. Verse 9 and 10. It says, With it, We bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who are made in Yahweh's likeness. Out of the same mouth come blessing and curses. My brothers, these things should not be this way. James gives the tongue kind of a double-edged description. He says, with it we will bless the creator of the universe, and with it we curse the things that were created by him and in his image. Out of the same mouth the tongue curses and it blesses. That's pretty profound. Where have we gone wrong? James says these things shouldn't be. It is said that on average a man speaks about 25,000 words a day. Women speak double that. It's because they think they've got to tell us everything twice. I'm just teasing. But really, our, our words are powerful. Our words are powerful. From the same mouth comes blessing and curses. Remember, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If our hearts are full of spiritual things, shouldn't our mouth bring forth only blessings instead of curses? Verse 11 and 12. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives? My brothers, or a vine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. These are his final analogies of the tongue. He reminds us that bitter, bitter and sweet water don't come from the same spring. Neither do fig trees produce olives, or grapevines produce figs. Even saltwater sources can't produce fresh water. In other words, our mouths can't speak what our hearts don't possess. When we open our mouths, it reveals what kind of person we really are. Is the spring from which our our words flow bitter or sweet? You need to ask yourself. This is a test for us. If it's a bitter spring, you can bet you won't get sweet water. And the point is this. Yahweh can and sometimes does a good work in a man or a person's heart. He doesn't do it all. He doesn't do it to all, but he does do it to some. And when he does, the heart will become soft and pliable, capable of being molded and made into what Yahweh would have it to be. When this takes place, the products that come from the heart will be in harmony with the test that James has given us here in chapter 3. True saving faith will have proper management of the tongue. I keep quoting from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. I keep saying that. So I want to I want to leave you with that. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34 through 37. We'll read that. I tell you what, let's start in, uh, let's start in chapter, chapter twelve, verse thirty-three. Matthew chapter twelve and verse thirty-three. I'll give you a second to find it. It says, "Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you're so evil?" For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good man produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil man produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. Did you catch that? Your words will be the basis of your judgment. Brothers and sisters, that is because your words are the most accurate depiction of your soul. You want to know what a man thinks? Listen to his mouth. He'll tell you. You want to know what's inside of him? You want to see how wicked he is inside? Listen to him. His mouth will be full, filled with filthiness. You'll, you'll see how wicked he is. The tongue simply brings forth what is in the heart. It's so powerful. It can tear people down, wreck a marriage, tear a church apart, and ruin relationships. But on the other hand, It can build people up, bring encouragement, joy, comfort, and love. So I encourage you to speak kind words, be gracious, thankful, loving, be comforting with your words, be gentle, speak gently, pray that Almighty Yahweh pricks your heart and causes the abundance of your heart to overflow with words of wisdom and kindness from your mouth. If we can manage our tongues and we can manage our whole body, by the power of the Holy Spirit, all glory to Yahweh. I love you guys. And uh, I'm thankful. I'm thankful to be able to to bring this message and to teach this this book. But I was scared. I was scared to stand here tonight. I didn't. Uh, I don't really think I'm adequate, you know. And and um. I even thought about not standing here tonight. But uh, I I texted Matthew and I said, man, I'm just uh I'm convicted of it. And I don't think that I that I should stand up there because I know that I fail in almost every point of James' epistle. I I fall short, you know, in parts of it. And he reminded me that we're not all perfect. None of us are perfect. And uh, that's the truth. There's not but one that's ever been perfect, and all we can do is just strive. I believe that always done a work in my life, and I believe that he's made me a new creature in it, and uh, that he constantly works on me and tries to make me what he would have me to be. However, I also know that I am human and I fall short all the time. Thanks to Yahweh and His grace and His mercy and His only begotten Son, I have a chance to keep going. You know. But um, remember this. Remember this. Your tongue is a beautiful thing. Your mouth is a beautiful thing. And with it you can do good and and with it you can do bad. But uh, make sure that, that the majority of what comes out of your mouth is good. It needs to be. It needs to be. This is a... This is a true test. If you have a filthy mouth, I'm not talking about—I'm not even talking about cussing so much. But if you—if you, if you backbite people and gossip and slander, talk about people, we all do it. Every one of us in here do it. If you say that you don't do it, you—you're deceiving yourself. There's—I guarantee you, there's foul—there's foul speech in your mouth that comes out sooner or later. If you have that problem, work on it. Work on it. Don't let a don't let this epistle or this this test go untrying in, in your life. Let it uh, let it convict you. Let it work on you, and um, and and do better about it. Be thankful that um, that Yahweh opens our eyes to see these things and and gives us grace to to renew and to relive and and to uh, to follow and walk in the ways that He ordained for us to walk in. I love all you guys. Thankful to be here. Heavenly Father. We love you, and we thank you for this message, Father. I thank you for uh, I thank you for James and his epistle, Father. I thank you for his humbleness and his meekness, and Father, I thank you for all the tests that you've given us to examine ourselves. And Father, I just pray that you let us be honest. Let's look into our souls and evaluate them and see where we stand with you, Father. Let us make corrections. Let us look into the mirror,
1: see our errors, see our
0: flaws, and make corrections. Father, I just uh, pray that what you what you ordained that you give us the ability to do. Father, we love you and we're so thankful for your son, the one that died for us, that we may have eternal life. Through him, we give you all the praise and honor and glory. In his holy name, amen.